Today's episode is part of our Protective Intelligence Honors Program, a program we developed at the Center for Protective Intelligence to celebrate the top pioneers and thought leaders in physical security. Each month, we will be recognizing groundbreaking professionals who have driven new shifts and novel practices, development of innovative solutions, and are contributing to influencing and advancing the physical security and protection industry. Today, I'm speaking with one of our honorees, Dr. Marisa Randazzo, the Chief Executive Officer of Sigma Threat Management Associates, to discuss her views on leadership, changes in the physical security space, and more. For her complete bio, please visit our website, protectiveintelligencehonors.com. Marisa, welcome. Thanks so much, Fred. It's a delight to be here. How did you get into the security industry? So I got into the security industry almost by accident and a little bit by accident. So I will tell you that back when I was eight years old, all I wanted for um, for my birthday was a crime kit, a toy crime kit. And I got that. And I spent an entire year trying to fingerprint the whole house and my parents eventually <laughs> <laughs> did away with the crime kit. So so I've had some some investigative fascination for a very long time. But in terms of actually getting into it in a career, I had a college course on psychology and law with a professor, a guy named Saul Casson, who was so passionate about the the potential impact that psychology could have on criminal justice that it was really contagious. And and I got into the field largely because of that course and everything I learned there and and the potential I saw for psychology to positively impact criminal justice. And then in a way, when I was in graduate school, I was sort of the um, I was the odd duck in our graduate program because I went to a was getting a, a doctorate in psychology in a program that was really good at placing their students into academic settings as assistant professors after they finished the program. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to work in an operational setting and really see an impact of research directly on operations. So I snuck out every summer and I did internships and I volunteered my time and I happened to come upon a, an internship at the U.S. Secret Service. And so I spent a year volunteering my time within a unit that doesn't exist anymore, but it was called the Behavioral Research Program. And by the time I finished my graduate degree, they actually had a full-time position available as a research psychologist. So I started my full-time career there and was with them for over a decade and and, um, learned a tremendous amount about physical security, about protective intelligence, about the, the potential for preventing violence that I have taken with me throughout my career. What's the biggest change you've seen in the security space during your career? So back in the early days when when I was with the U.S. Secret Service, the intelligence division was the division then, and it's now the protective intelligence division that handles all threat cases. So I worked under that division. And in terms of monitoring cases and in terms of monitoring the whereabouts of different individuals, um, they would rely on on a large whiteboard that they would then take pictures of. And so part of the there was no there was no electronic 
capability. There was no databases, no computer capability to track all of those things we needed to. That was developing as I was there. But but security back in the day had to be done so manually compared to what we are able to do now. And now a lot of the practices have remained, but they are tremendously enhanced by technology where we can do protective investigations faster, more efficiently, uh, get a, a bird's eye view of things we, we hadn't been able to get before. How well I know those manual procedures. <laughs> How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure of yours? So uh, failure definitely has, has set me up for success. And, and um, I do have a favorite failure. So let me answer it that way. There was a case that I worked a number of years ago, and it was a case with someone who was very fixated on someone we were protecting and, um, and, and highly mentally ill, but you would never know it from talking with her. Um, she came across as very put together, uh, looked like someone who would be equally comfortable in a, you know, at a, at a, a black tie dinner or a, a corporate boardroom, um, and but was in in layperson's terms completely crazy. Um, had delusions that she actually was in a relationship with the person we were protecting, and that um, that she was meant to be with him, and that she also had a delusion that that he was finding secret ways to communicate special messages to her, and that she had to do everything she could to be with him. This is not unlike a lot of cases we see where we thought, you know, getting her connected with the right mental health care and, and probably medication could help manage those, that mental health aspect, that the illness and the delusion. But all the normal tactics that we were using weren't working with her. And we were close to failure. Hadn't quite gotten there yet, but, but it was taking far more efforts and, and our normal approaches and trying to establish liaison with the person and get them into care was not working. And, and actually, in some cases, almost looked like it was ramping up the situation, making things worse. So we had a number of late night meetings where we went back to the drawing board. And one of the things we teach, and I teach in threat assessment and, and think about this case every single time I teach it, is that you need to go back to the facts. The facts will show you what intervention might work to get someone away from violence off the pathway to violence. And we went back to the facts in a very late night meeting and realized that we had missed something critical in her history that didn't seem as relevant when we first discovered it. And that was that she had a, a significant history of having been abused physically and, and sexually by men who were in power over her in her life, uh, her stepfather, her, her, her biological father, and then her stepfather, et cetera. And the people we had trying to work with her were men in position of power over her. And we thought, maybe this is part of why it's not working. And we, we also thought it may not work, but we don't. We are out of options at this point. So we traded off the, the men, very experienced investigators we had assigned to this case for the only women we had who were available who were brand new investigators. And we coached them through working with this highly mentally ill woman. And it took a, probably two or three days, but finally she started returning their calls and agreed to meet with them and agreed to go for uh, an emergency psychiatric evaluation. And we got her on the right medication. And, and it was a wonderful win, 
and a wonderful reminder of even when you think you have run out of options, go back to the basics. You may have missed something. In this case, it was something that we didn't think was that relevant until our normal procedures weren't working and weren't working in fantastically obvious ways. We went back and thought, well, let's try this and see. And, and fortunately, it ended up you know, working out very well. That's a great story. What is your everyday carry? So I've finally gotten smart in my older age in that I have a great team I have assembled around me. So my everyday carry is largely delegating to those who have to carry. <laughs> um, but it, but it's a mix of, of work and um, it is a mix of coordinating training sessions. We, uh, in, in what we do at Sigma, we do a lot of work training other people to run protective intelligence investigations, run threat assessment investigations, develop their own in-house programs. Um, so a lot of what we do is provide that direct training. And in terms of my everyday carry, I spend time listening in. Right now we're doing a lot of training virtually. So I spend a lot of time listening in and thinking, how can we make this message even clearer? How can we make this information as easy for people to absorb and, and develop the skill and take this information with them going forward? Because it, it is it is absolutely a learnable skill. And so for our team at Sigma, yes, we, we work on individual cases as well. But so much of what we do is try to pass on to new investigators in the field of threat assessment everything that the experts at our team have learned and to try to find ways to make this whole protective intelligence process easier for people to do. Marissa, what motto do you live by? So it's pretty specific to my field, but the motto I've been living by for the past several years has been, the more people that can understand what threat assessment is, the greater a job we all can do at preventing violence. It's not rocket science, and so much of, of what we bring to teaching and to webinars we do and to um, op-ed pieces I write and, and the like is trying to make this as easy for people to understand for a broad audience, not just investigators, but your average school teacher or your hospital emergency room worker or uh, you know a, a corporate executive. The more everyone understands even just some basic information about threat assessment and how we can prevent targeted violence, I think the better job we can all do together at preventing mass shootings and, and active shooter situations. Well said. What are the biggest changes you expect to see in the physical security space in the next one to three years? So coming uh, as we are emerging from, uh, you know, a, a over a year long lockdown with a pandemic, my, my biggest concern is that we are going to see our physical security professionals and our executive protection teams just seeing a flood of concerns coming in, that people will be coming back to the workplace, back into educational institutions, back into retail settings as, as customers, as well as employees, and bringing with them 15 months of stress. And that we're going to have people who are more fearful to be out and about, and we're going to have people who are have shorter tempers and, and are operating under a greater stress load than we see. And so I, I've, I've have been trying to work with our team around how can we identify ways to start to make those physical protection teams and security professionals ready for what I think are going to be a dramatic increase in inbound threats and troubling behavior. 
and how can they do this? Um, and so, you know, I, I say this as often as I can, but we are huge fans of Ontic's protective intelligence database platform because it gives a mechanism to be able to handle an increase in inbound threats like this, a process people can follow and a quick way to look at where am I in this particular case. We can't go back to the old days of looking at a whiteboard and, and taking pictures. We have to be prepared for what is likely going to be a higher volume than most of us have been used to dealing with, at least in the next 12 months or so. My hope is after that, it'll start to taper off. But I think we're going to be in for, for a rough year upcoming, just in terms of volatility, uh, people losing their tempers easily. Unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to see more um, mass shootings in, in public spaces. And, and for those of us on the protection side, I want us to, to help everyone think through what they can do to, to be ready for that. Well, thank you for those kind words about uh, what we try to do here at Ontic. Marissa, is there anything I haven't asked that you would like to say? My only tip for people coming up in this field um, is, especially for people, I often get questions from college students around what should I be studying and what should I go into? And and my general recommendation is study what, you know whatever interests you. If it happens to be criminal justice, great. If it's psychology, great. But but you can become a great investigator with a degree in English literature. It, it, it just find ways to, to hone those skills of, of you know, curiosity and, and fact-finding. But the advice I often give sort of from a practical standpoint to college students and, and others just starting is, if you can't find a job directly in the field you want, go ahead and volunteer your time. Call up a local field office. Call your local sheriff's office. See if you can shadow someone. See if you can offer you know, volunteer some, some hours with, with filing and the like, just uh, anything they might need help with. They may or may not be amenable to it, but, but you won't know unless you ask. And it's a great way to get to see what a law enforcement or a security culture is like. And is this an environment you'd like to be part of? Is this a mission that that you know that ignites your passion for serving others and 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 for doing good and keeping people safe? Um, I did a lot of volunteering in, in my time and and learned as much about what I didn't want to do as I as I learned about what I did want to do. And so I. I found it to be an invaluable experience. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for the honor. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontech.ai or visit ontech.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.